All right, all right, all right. Here we go. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Matthew chapter 6. So we'll be camping out this morning. Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 11. The Lord's Prayer part 2 this morning. I want to address something really quickly at the beginning, because um, I don't really, I'm going to have time at the end, so I wanted to talk about this at the beginning really quick. You might notice that as we read the Lord's Prayer, as we, and as we talk about it, uh, there's going to be a part that most all of you probably know and are familiar with that we're not going to cover. And it is the part at the end that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the reason we're not going to cover it is because it's not in the Bible. It is in the King James Version. You might ask the question, why is that in the King James Version, but not in modern translations? Well, the King James Version was translated off four different manuscripts or copies. And we now know that those copies that they, that they based it off of were not very old ones. And so at least one of those had this ending to the Lord's Prayer in it. Um, it was probably inserted because the Lord's Prayer kind of ends abruptly. And so it was probably added later to kind of give a, a benediction or serve as a better ending to the prayer. Um, but it is not in the earliest manuscripts. And now we have, you know, we've, we translate our five, 6,000 copies and it's not in those. And so I bring this up to say that there's nothing wrong with that portion of the prayer. When you pray it, you pray that. That is totally fine. But we're not going to preach on it this morning because it's not actually in the Bible. And our job is to be committed to knowing this book. Studying this book, understanding this book, and we're not going to preach on things that aren't in the book. So, hope that makes sense. Last week, we talked about the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and really, kind of four quick recap things to, to, to think about it. This is kind of in the cloud. The first part's kind of up in the clouds, right? That God is this caring Father, and He wants to hear our prayers. But also, He is a Father who is transcendent, meaning He's big and holy, and when we approach him, we must approach him with humility. Also, we talk about hallowed be your name, this idea that God's reputation is at stake, and we need to be praying that God's reputation and his fame would go forth, and that people would know who he is and know what he is about by the way we live. And we pray that God's kingdom would come, we're praying that history would come to a close, and that all God's people uh, would do his will, that people would do his will, and that we would submit to his will uh, and not our own. Now we look at the second half of the prayer. And so look at your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pins these words. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all remember Altel? Altel was this phone carrier service that got bought by one of the bigger guys. And my first cell phone when I was 16 years old only had like a little green screen on it. It was from Altel. And my whole family got Altel. That's who we were on. And my dad had this uh, problem where his, he went to get an upgrade for a phone and they denied him his upgrade or something like that. And, 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 and so he had this old phone. He couldn't get a new one. And, and so he went to the manager and talked to the manager and said, hey, I need to be able to get my upgrade. 
Uh, and he's like, yeah, I'm kind of locked out of the system. I can't really do anything to help you. If you know my dad, then this would make sense to me. He said, well, I need to talk to your boss. And so he's like, well, I am the boss. He said, oh, you're the CEO of the company. Congratulations. He's like, well, no. He's like, oh, so you do have a boss. Okay, I need to talk to him. He said, well, that's the regional manager. Great, give me his number. And so my dad talks to the regional manager. Hey, I've got this problem. I need to upgrade my phone. They're not letting me upgrade my phone. Da, 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 da. Uh, it's been two years. I'm supposed to get a free one. And they're like, sorry, sir, I can't, I can't do anything for you. He's like, oh, that's okay. That's fine. I need to talk to your boss. He said, well, sir, I am the boss. He's like, really? You're the CEO. He's like, well, no. He's like, okay, you got a boss. Who's that? He's like, well, that's so-and-so. He's like, well, I need his number. Somehow, my dad worked his way all the way up the chain until he got to the CEO of Altel. And he talks to uh, the, the, he gets to, well, I'll, I'll say this. He gets to his desk, his secretary's desk, and talks to her, uh, and she passes the message on. And he responds by saying, I do not know how you got to me before this problem could be solved. There was a million, you know, a hundred people before you should have solved your problem. This level of problem does not rise to the level of my office or my desk or my position. I'm sorry this happened. God never treats us like some bosses do. Like, ah, uh, that problem's too big. That's not, that's, you know, I ain't got time for that. Uh, sorry, I can't help you. Don't, don't bring that to my attention. Sorry, sorry, that's happened to you, but I don't really, I can't deal with that right now. There is nothing too big or too small that we bring before God. He is always ready to listen. He's always ready to answer. There is no concern, no thought, no fear, no worry, so small that it can't be brought to him, that he is ready to answer it, ready to listen, and he longs to hear from you. He longs to hear the smallest concerns as a father leaning in with his full attention. This section of the Lord's Prayer is kind of transitions. The prayer moves from the clouds of heaven and the purposes of heaven to the trials and troubles of our own dusty streets and dirty kitchens. So we begin with the first phrase that says, give us this day our daily bread. The first point is God wants to hear about and provide for our daily needs. God wants to hear about and provide for our daily needs. Like he really does. He really wants to hear. He really is listening. He doesn't look at your concerns and go, sorry, that's not, that doesn't rise to my level. That doesn't rise to my desk. You should have been to an angel or went to your pastor. Like, don't, don't bring that to me. That never happens. He is wanting to hear and wanting to provide. Praying for daily needs is a reminder of our dependence. It's a reminder of our dependence. Our dependence on God is nothing new. It's not uh, new. Even before the fall, Adam and Eve in the garden were still dependent creatures. So our dependence isn't new. It's not a product of the fall. Adam and Eve in the garden, they could have they planted plants. They could till. They had to harvest. And while it was easier back then, they were still dependent on God to make their crops grow. Dependence is at the core of who we are as creatures. We are made with incredible capacity to work and to act, but never so independent that we forget that many things are out of our control and that we are in need and dependent upon something outside of us, something bigger than us. We're dependent upon God. This dependence is a not a negative thing. 
right? This dependence isn't negative, it's, imp- it's positive, right? It's a positive thing. Because as the prayer begins, we have a Father in heaven, a Father who longs to provide, longs to hear, and wants to be known to us as provider. Remember Jesus' words just in the next chapter, chapter 7. He says, or which one of you, if his sons ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? I love this comparison between us and God because we are pretty darn good at giving gifts to our kids. Think about how much money you spend outside of their basic needs, right? Providing shelter and food for your kids that you spend on them. Think about all the money that we spend on buying them sports gear, taking them on vacation, taking them to do fun things, buying them ice cream. We bless our children more now than in the history of the world. We've got more money to bless them. And we do that even though we are evil. We bless our children even though we're evil. And if we do that while we're evil, imagine the sorts of blessings and gifts God wants to bestow on his children, on you. I'm struck by the way Jesus ends this teaching. Who does he give these things to? Who does he bless? Who does he give? It is to those who ask. He longs to give to those who ask. Remember what James says? You do not have because you do not ask. God is not simply a deity off in the sky. He is a father who wants to answer your prayers. He wants to bless you. But he doesn't do that without our asking. Imagine the things that would happen in our life if we actually began to ask. It reminds me of George Mueller who lived in the 1800s. And he, George Mueller was known for starting orphanages all across England. All across Britain. One day he was working in one of his orphanages and, the, and one of the ladies came to him and it, she said, Sir, all the kids are ready for school, but there is no food for lunch. There's no food to give them. And he told her, he said, I want you to go and I want you to get all the kids and bring them all into the cafeteria. And so she does it. She rounds them all up and she brings them into the cafeteria and he comes to them and he prays this section of the Lord's Prayer. He says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And they send them to their classes. And it was not too long after that that the town baker came and knocked on the door. And he said, I could not sleep last night because I just had this feeling that you and all these kids are going to need some bread. So I got up, spent all night baking, and I've brought bread to share it with the kids. And a little while after that, the milkman of the town's cart broke down right in front of the orphanage. And he came and he said, hey, all this milk is about to spoil. Could you guys use it? Funny you should ask, we could. God provides for his children, particularly when they ask. Dependence is not bad. It's a reminder that we're not gods. That we are not in all-powerful in control. But we have a divine father who cares for us deeply, who loves to give good gifts to his children, particularly when we ask. B, praying for daily needs is a reminder of the dignity of the physical world. See, there are many religions, and even sometimes Christians fall in this trap, where we begin to believe that the physical world and even the body are our best temporary, useful, and at worst, we think that the body and the physical world is so sinful that it should be utterly rejected. 
But the Bible often warns of this, this kind of belief. It's called asceticism, which is a severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. See, we think that there is great, sometimes we think there's great spiritual value in denying the body. And while there is obviously a place for fasting, that is a temporary thing in order to focus more on prayer and on Jesus. The fasting itself, without replacing it with something, has no value. The value is not in the fasting in and of itself. Denying yourself good things does not make one more spiritual or one more holy. Rejection of the physical things doesn't make you holy. Many of us, without realizing it, have treated spiritual things like they are all that matter in the world. And we have rejected the physical things or the secular things as just means to an end. This prayer from Jesus to ask for our daily bread is a rejection of the notion that we should devalue the body, that we should devalue physical needs, that they are somehow unspiritual and God doesn't care for them. Rather, Paul reminds us that whether, in 1 Corinthians that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we do it to the glory of God. God created the world and he said that it was good. And so food and physical pleasures rightly received, that part's important, Food and physical pleasures, rightly received, functions as a reminder of the greatness of God, the kindness of God to give gifts and to give provision that is good, that we are to enjoy to his glory. When we cut into a medium rare filet mignon, which is the only way it is to be cooked, amen? When it is cooked medium rare and you slice into that thing, you should say, thank you Jesus for an incredible steak. And you should enjoy it and enjoy the pleasures of it. And that enjoying it is worship unto God when you thank the giver of the gift. We should not reject the steak and instead go and eat old moldy bread thinking that, that somehow denying ourselves good gifts and having old moldy bread somehow makes us more holy. It does not. It brings God good. It brings God pleasure. To give pleasurable gifts, whether food or drink or marriage or football, which starts in one week. OH is a close game, but they pulled it out. <laughs> we must receive these things rightly, use them rightly, and enjoy them to the glory of God. So it is good and right to pray and ask God for provision for our daily needs. It is not wrong. It is not sinful, it is not undignified or unholy to pray and ask God to help you to pay your water bill, to ask him for good gifts, to ask him to put food on your table. It is a delight to his heart. See, physical needs point to a greater spiritual need. Do you remember the Old Testament story where the Israelites, they've escaped Egypt. Remember, they're slaves in Egypt. They, they, they escape. They cross the Red Sea. And now they're wandering in the wilderness. And they wander there for 40 years. And they're starving. And, they're, uh, and God eventually provides manna or bread from heaven to feed them. And Moses tells his people in Deuteronomy 8, he says, that the reason God let the Israelites go hungry for a time he let them go hungry for a time before providing them with the manna was so that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
You've heard those words before. When Jesus, for not for 40 years, but 40 days, was fasting in the wilderness and was tempted to eat the bread, to turn the stone into bread by Satan. What does Jesus say? That man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God was teaching the Israelites that our physical needs, the hunger pains of the stomach, are meant to point to a greater need. Our, the hunger pains of our growling stomachs are meant to point to our greater need. Our need for daily sustenance is but a faint echo of our daily need for spiritual sustenance from God. The only way that we will taste the goodness of Jesus is provision is by living according to what comes from the mouth of God. The way we taste God's provision is through living to according to what comes from the mouth of God. This is why Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life. He refers to himself as the bread of life. Remember when he scares everybody off and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me? And they're like, yeah, that's okay, Jesus. See you later, weirdo. He calls himself the bread of life, the true manna sent from heaven. Because he is God's ultimate provision for our spiritual lives. So every day as we pray and ask God to provide for our daily needs, and as we see God provide for those daily needs, our daily bread, it is to remind us that our daily need is far greater than simply bread on our table. We need bread from heaven. We need Jesus, the one who, like bread, was broken for us. And that only by eating and taking Jesus into us, only by taking him into us, only by taking on Jesus and following him can we be truly satisfied. Every other thing that we eat leaves us hungry. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how if you go to Texas and you eat that 72-ounce steak right when you get off the airport in Dallas, you're going to be hungry again. Maybe not for supper, but by breakfast you're going to be hungry again. But when you feast on Jesus, he satisfies in such a way that you will never, ever hunger spiritually again. So when we pray, we ask God to provide for our daily physical needs, but we are also reminded that not only does he gladly provide those things, but they point to a greater provision that he gives us in Jesus. The second line of the prayer today, later in the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is central to following Jesus. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel, right? Forgiveness is central to Christianity. Forgiveness is central to following Jesus. Growing up, most of us memorized this prayer in the King James, and we used the word trespass, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Which carries this idea that, right, someone's coming to your life, they've trespassed on your life, and they've done something they shouldn't have done, and they've hurt you, they've trespassed on your life. And as I got older, and I began to read these other translations and say the Lord's Prayer in a modern translation and use the word debt, I didn't like it. It was, it was change. It was new, and I didn't like it. It didn't feel right, right, because I'd grown up saying this other thing so many times. And it sounded different. I didn't like it. But actually the word debt makes a lot more sense when we think about what Jesus is trying to say. We are all familiar with debts. Every one of us in this room most likely have debt of some sort. Uh, debt in our house. Millions of Americans still have student loan debts. Some of us are a little less student loan debt now, but still probably have some student loan debt. Probably some credit card debt. Our country is trillions of dollars in debt. 
Debt for us can cause anxiety, cause worry, can cause fear. But at worst case scenario, in our lives in the 21st century, we might file for bankruptcy and get all our debt wiped out and just have a really bad credit score. But in Jesus' day, the prisons were not filled with criminals. Criminals were killed or forced into labor. No, the prisons were full of people who could not pay their debts. Prisons were full of people who owed money and could not pay it. If you couldn't pay a debt you were owed, you were thrown into prison, and your family had to somehow come up with the money to pay off the debt in order to get you out of prison. So when Jesus prays, forgive our debtors, that is the context in which he's saying that. A context in which people were thrown in prison for not being able to pay it back. To forgive a debt was no simple thing. To pay off a debt was an an extravagant mercy. It was to release someone, not just from the money they owed, but to release them from prison. And as Jesus is speaking of forgiveness of sins here, the connection to the forgiveness of debt is really helpful. Because paying off debt and forgiving somebody who hurts you are kind of the same thing. A, forgiveness is debt removal. Forgiveness is debt removal. You see, if you owe me $100 and I say to you, hey man, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me back. I'll forgive the debt. But how am I able to forgive it? How am I able to say that? I can only do that if I bear the loss myself. I can only forgive you the $100 debt if I'm willing to bear the loss of the $100 not coming back to me. I am actually paying the debt. I am paying the $100 instead of you. I am taking the loss instead of forcing you to pay it back. Forgiveness is like that, paying the debt. Offenses in life work just like that. If you hurt my feelings with a cruel word, or if you lie to me, or if you offend me in some way, and you come and you ask my forgiveness for the way that you have wronged me, what you are asking me to do in forgiving you is to pay your debt off. Not, a, not an amount of money, not a debt of money, but a debt of, an, of emotion. You see, if I'm hurt by something you did, what is my natural reaction? I want to hurt you back. I want to punch you in the face. I want to talk bad about you behind your back. I want to sever the relationship, cut off the friendship. It might pain me to be around you. And by asking me to forgive you, you are asking me to not take out my pain on you. You are asking me to suffer internally with all of the hurt and all of the pain that I have in absorb it inside myself and not act it out on you. I'm paying the debt instead of you. Because if I punched you, we'd be even. Debt paid. (laughs) If I went and talked behind your back, if I went and ruined your reputation, if I went and gossiped about you, we might be even. But to forgive you is to take all those hurts all that pain, and not let it destroy our relationship, not hold it against against you, not let it affect us, not take it out on you. That is what forgiveness is like. That's why it's paying debt. And that is exactly what God has done 
when he forgives us. For God to forgive us, he had to pay the debt. See, when we sin against God, it offends God. It doesn't just break his laws. It grieves his heart. It offends him. And in order for God to forgive us, he has to take the full weight of his anger, the full weight of his hurt, the full weight of his betrayal, and instead of pouring out that anger on you, he has to absorb it in himself. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, that is exactly what God is doing. God is not mad at you, and so he goes and he kicks his dog. That's not what's happening. God is angry at you. Instead of taking out his anger on you, he takes it out on himself. And Jesus is crucified, absorbing the anger and wrath and hurt of God. God pays the debt himself in the body of Jesus by absorbing it. Forgiveness means that you pay the emotional, spiritual, physical debt instead of taking it out on the offender. Forgiveness is always debt payment. B, forgiving others flows out of our own forgiveness. In this prayer, Jesus prays, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And notice it does not say because we. Because if it said because we, that would mean that our forgiveness from God was something we earned by forgiving other people. That as I forgave other people, then God would forgive me. But it's just the opposite. How is it that I'm able to forgive those people in my life who hurt me? How is it that I'm able to take the betrayal and those things that hurt me emotionally? How is it that I'm able to muster up the gumption to get over this thing? To pay the debts of anger that I have towards you, the hurt that I have towards you. How can I do it? The only way I can do it is to the extent we understand how much we have first offended God and how much debt he has forgiven us for. When we forget about how God has paid our debts, it makes us jaded, mean, unforgiving people. But when we are in awe of the price God paid to forgive us, of the debt he paid to forgive us, it changes you. It can't not change you. That's a double negative, sorry. It must change you. And it enables us to look at those people who have hurt us. And it's a real hurt, right? It's true hurt. And we're able to look through that pain and look through that hurt and forgive them and bear the weight of the hurt ourselves and not on them. Jesus made this point in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You might remember this where Jesus tells a story about this guy who is called before this ruler. And this guy says, hey, man, it's time to pay up. Your debt is due. And the debt was like, in modern days, like trillions of dollars. This massive debt that this guy had no hope of ever paying back. And he falls to his knees and he pleads with the guy. And the guy says, you know what? I'm not going to throw you in prison. I'm going to forgive the debt. You're free to go. And the man rejoices. And he's like, thank you so much. And he, and he goes and he walks out. And the first person he runs into is one of his buddies who he lent 10 bucks to. And he says, hey, man, I need my 10 bucks. He's like, hey, man, can I get you back next week? I don't have it right now. He's like, nope, you're going to jail. And he sends him to debtor's prison. And the ruler hears about that, and he calls him back before him. He's like, dude, what's up? I just forgave you like a trillion dollars, and you couldn't in turn go back and forgive your buddy ten bucks? What gives? He says, no, I ain't working, that like, working like that. Now you're going to jail, and you're going to pay off the debt. You see, if we understand the massive debt that we have incurred, and God has paid, then in turn it will change us. If we understand what's happened, it will change us. So that when we have these smaller infractions against us, 
And by small, I mean small in comparison to the way we've offended God. We'll see those in our life. People will hurt us. They'll wrong us. They'll say a quick word that, man, just, just breaks our heart, just hurts us, worms its way in there. And we'll be able to quickly and easily forgive because we know. We know that we're just as capable and do just as much and hurt people and have hurt God. And, man, we've been forgiven again and again and again and again. And that changes us to be able to turn around and forgive other people. One of the ways we can know that we ourselves have experienced God's forgiveness, one of the evidences that we can know we've experienced forgiveness from God is seen in how we are able to forgive others. Because someone who has been forgiven much is quick to forgive. It is simply impossible. It is impossible to experience the richness of God's grace and forgiveness and remain a stubborn, obstinate, cold-hearted, unforgiving person. If that is how you are, you've not experienced the riches of mercy of God in Christ. So what does praying like this do for us? What does praying this prayer, God, forgive me of my debts as I forgive others of theirs, this prayer keeps us rooted in the gospel. It is easy for us to drift toward legalism and remain mad at somebody who hurt us. It is so natural for us. We all do this. We drift to legalism out away from grace and remain mad and bitter at people who hurt us. Like it's really easy for us to hold grudges. It's really easy to hold on to that offense. We don't want to let it go and we, don't, we begin to define ourselves and let it rule our lives. And we hold this grudge and we grow bitter. It's really easy to be upset at someone and to allow some past hurt to affect a relationship or a friendship going forward. You can feel the tension in the relationship and you don't let it go. It's really easy for us to do that. Because some of my deepest friendships in my life are not those where we've never hurt each other's feelings, never offended one another. My deepest friendships are those where we both have time and time again hurt one another, said something too quickly, said something brashly, did something to offend them, but we were both very quick and very eager to forgive and wipe the slate clean and pay the debt. That has caused relationships in my life to be incredibly deep and intimate. But the opposite is true. Those relationships in my life where whether it's me or them who hold on to something, I can't get past it. And every time you talk to them, it's kind of lingering there. And you never feel like if you're really okay, those relationships never grow to that deep, awesome place because you're, you never get past the debt. If you want those kinds of relationships with people, be lavish with forgiveness and make it clear to them, hey, man, I'm going to own that. I'm going to bear that in my, myself until it's gone and you're, we're good. We must be a people who pray this prayer so that we can do that. We've got to be a people who pray every day, God, forgive me. And help me forgive others like you forgive me. We need to pray this to be reminded of who we are. That we are a people who owed a great debt and it's been paid off. And it roots us in grace when we pray that every day. It roots us in grace. Roots us in God's love. There are some of you in this room right now. Without a doubt, there are some of you in this room right now. And you are harboring some unforgiveness 
some bitterness in your heart against a brother or sister in Christ right now. Or you may be some of you in this room right now, and you've told that person everything's okay. You've told that person. I mean, how often do we do that? Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But really, like, we're still kind of worrying about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. You've said that. You said everything's fine. No big deal. But the relationship has changed. You're more guarded. You haven't fully let it go. You're holding it against them. I found one of the, one of the greatest practices in my life, in my marriage, and my friends, is to never say to them when, when, some, when there's something between us, to never say to them, hey, man, don't worry about it. Hey, man, for, no big deal. But rather to look at them and say, I forgive you. And on the op- opposite end, when I've done the thing wrong, to not just go, man, hey, we cool. Hey, man, sorry that happened. But to say, hey, man, I'm so sorry I did this thing. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Because I want to hear them say, yes, I forgive you, because there's something so freeing about that. If you, if you don't do that, do that in your marriage. It will transform it, I promise. Unforgiveness only hurts you. It, primar- it doesn't only, but it primarily hurts you. It's like a cancer that slowly hardens your heart and turns you bitter, stubborn, and cold. Over time, bitterness, it's birth from unforgiveness. You are commanded by your king. You are commanded by your, the one you say is your king, you're commanded to forgive. Not an option. And so my challenge to you is to start praying this prayer. Father, forgive me of all my sins again today and help me to forgive those who've wronged me. Pray that. Praying this prayer centers you in the gospel and it helps us know how much we needed forgiveness and so it makes us quicker to forgive. So pray that. And then pay the debt you owe. Pay the debt you owe and keep paying it every day. When you want to forgive someone, keep paying their debt for them every day until the debt is gone and you no longer feel the resentment and anger you're holding on to. Some of you in this room need to go to somebody else in this room after service today and say, I've been holding something and I haven't been able to let it go, but today I'm going to try, I'm going to start, I'm going to try to let it go. I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to pay that debt. I'm sorry I've been holding on to that. Sometimes we do that and the other person doesn't even know, right? Like sometimes we hold on to something that the other person thinks we're all good and you're just like, just stewing, just holding on to it. I ain't hurt anybody but you. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. That's what happens when you have five kids, sorry. Forgiveness is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. The youth have just about lost it. <laughs> Ryan reined them in, though. All right, finally. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Point three, prayer is a weapon we use to fight our enemy. Prayer is a weapon we use to fight our enemy. One of the things you might know about me is I hate wasps. I loathe them. Honeybees are okay, bumblebees fine, wasps, get out of here. Mowing my yard, there's, all, there's this, in my yard, in the front yard, there's these like boxes, you know, like internet cables come through or whatever. And so I'm always mowing around them, weed eating around them. One of them's kind of broken, and so I'm always like straightening it up, putting it on, whatever. Well, one day it was kind of jacked up, and so I went and grabbed it, pulled it up, and I mean, here they come. Boy, you talking about dropping a weed eater and running 
I mean, I think I was just, I was taking off in the air. I was like, if there was water, I'd have ran across the water. I'd ran so fast. If somebody was watching, they would have dropped dead laughing. I'd take off, and then like, I mean, there's just swarming around this thing. Go finally, they calm down and go look, and then there's like five giant wasp nests. And for years, I've been right on top of it. For years, I've been weed eating, mowing, straightening that thing up, just tempting death. Right, right there. I was right in front of danger that I was so unaware of. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. We live our lives thinking that most of the threats are physical. They're germs and viruses and mice and wasps and snakes. But the reality is there are invisible forces working against us, working to harm us, working to destroy us every day of our lives. The Bible tells us that the enemy is prowling like a lion seeking to whom he can devour. The enemy and his demons' primary weapon is temptation. None of us in this room, no matter how holy you are or how long you have followed Jesus, are beyond being tempted. And we must not be so foolish to think that his temptations are always so obvious. The Bible says the enemy comes to appear as an angel of light. So while there are certainly times that we are tempted to do things that, and the temptation is obvious, there are many times, and probably most of the time, that the temptation is subtle and cunning and we don't ever see it coming. And we gave in and we never even realized we gave in. C.S. Lewis said it this way in the screw tape letters, writing as a senior demon to a junior demon how to tempt their human. He says, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So whether temptation comes to you in the form of longings for things you know ought not be done, looking at images on your phone you know you shouldn't, gossiping about someone in the name of prayer requests, or refusing forgiveness because you have forgiven them enough already, or whether your temptation is subtle, the slow call and drift away from life in the church, calling you deeper and deeper into a busier and busier life. A life so busy that church becomes the obstacle to your schedule and not the priority of your schedule. Remember how sly the devil is. He convinced Adam and Eve that God didn't want them to eat the fruit because if they ate the fruit, they'd become gods themselves. He convinced them that God was holding out on them. And how might the enemy use your social media feed? How might the enemy use the news you read? The politics you follow, the movies you watch, the influences that you think are just things you take in. How is he affecting the way you believe, the way you act, causing you to do things contrary to what Jesus is calling you to do, all the while you never even realized you were being tempted? Whatever you are tempted in, we must pray this prayer, Father, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us because we are not capable in our own strength to resist the temptation and the work of the enemy. And sometimes we're not even able to realize we're being tempted. So deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation. 
Because we are fallen, broken creatures with sin natures, our wills are not so strong to resist the works of the enemy. But if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and if Jesus is on our side, and he is, he gives us the strength to flee, to say no, to recognize when we're being tempted. We don't pray, God, give me a little help here. We pray, God, deliver me and rescue me from this temptation, deliver me from this evil, and he will. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is this little unknown, not very well known Old Testament story where Elijah and Elisha are traveling and they're in this little house kind of surrounded by these mountains. And on top of the hill there is this army that has them surrounded. And Elijah's just playing it cool, but Elisha's freaking out. He is wigging out. He's losing his mind. He's like, well, we're going to die. That's it. And Elijah says, Lord, give him sight. And all of a sudden, Elisha sees That behind the army that's coming to take them out is an army of angelic hosts ready to protect them. It's so awesome. When we ask Jesus to deliver us from evil, the devil and his demons are no match for him and his army of angels. If you are stuck in some pattern of sin and you pray and ask God to deliver you from it, If you are stuck in some cycle of pornography and you can't break it, ask God to deliver you and keep asking him to deliver you while you fight tooth and claw. If you are stuck in a pattern of anxiety and depression and you ask God to deliver you, fight for joy and contentment while you ask for deliverance. Some of you are stuck in a pattern of substance abuse and you haven't even recognized it yet. Ask God to deliver you while you fight for sobriety. If you are stuck in a pattern of being cold and rude and unforgiving and a stubborn curmudgeon, ask God to deliver you while you fight for joy. Sin is not neutral. It is not just something you do. Sin is a parasite that works and worms its way into your life to make you believe you need it, that it is the source of your happiness. All the while, it is eating away and destroying you from the inside out. Sin is not an arbitrary list of rules that God decided to come up with and say, hey, don't do these things. These are my rules. But rather, it is a list of rules that God says, these are the things I know will destroy you, so don't do them. It's like as parents, we say, honey, don't touch the stove. It's hot. I ain't going to listen to your rules. Ouch. Don't stick your finger in the light socket. Well, who are you to come up with these rules? He's not giving us some random thing, list of rules. He's saying, these, these are the things that hurt you. Don't do them. Whatever sin pattern you are stuck in, and it happens to every one of us. We all get stuck in different patterns of sin. You are not alone. That sin does not have to define you. It does not have to keep its claws in you. You can have victory over it, but you can't do it alone. God must give you the strength. He must deliver you. You need some people to walk with you through that. But that battle begins and ends with prayer. It begins and ends with prayer, praying that God would deliver you and keep you from temptation. So we pray for forgiveness of sin and that God would help us to forgive other peoples. We pray asking God to provide for our daily bread, daily needs. We pray to ask God to deliver us from evil. 
The first part of this model prayer focuses on the purposes of heaven, of God and the world, and how we should align ourselves with that. But this week, we see that prayer doesn't just have to live up in the clouds. It also comes down to our dirty kitchens, and it gets in the messiness of our lives. Your Father wants you to pray so much. The New Testament says to pray without ceasing. Jesus is, he's always going off in the Gospels, right? He's, he's with the disciples doing something. He's like, all right, I'll be back later. And like five hours later, he comes back. like, what have you been doing? He's like, well, I've been praying. Jesus is always sneaking off to pray. And if Jesus, who is God, very God, and he is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise, if he needs to go pray, how much more do we need to go and pray? When we end a prayer, we say amen. Amen means that we agree. It means we concur. We second the motion. It serves, amen serves as a reminder to us that we never pray this prayer alone. But that we have a church family praying with us and for us. That there are people beside us. It is a reminder that Jesus himself is praying for us. That he's interceding on our behalf. It is a reminder that when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit is praying with groans too deep for words. It is a reminder that this prayer has been prayed for century upon century upon century. And we have not prayed it alone. But that there is a church who's praying with us, who agrees with us and is going to God on our behalf. So church, let's be a praying church. Let's pray for one another. Gosh, we need to pray for one another. Not just for our sicknesses to be healed. We need to pray that, we'd, that our marriages would thrive, that we'd be good parents, that we'd be good stewards. We need to pray for all sorts, that we would have tender hearts, we would love Jesus more tomorrow than we do today. We need to pray for one another. And so let's pray for our daily bread. Let's pray to fight temptation. Let's pray that we would forgive each other. And even let's pray those words that aren't actually in the Bible. That yours is the kingdom. And yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We pray because we know those words are true. For he is all-powerful and has all glory, and for his kingdom is forever. And so let's pray like that. And I think if we pray like that, it'll change us in ways we can't imagine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. God, these are words that you have used to teach us to pray. God, help us to pray them. Help us to be a church who prays a father, not a deity, but a father who is in heaven. Help us to be a people who pray that your name and reputation would be made glorious and holy through everyone we reach. May we be a people who pray for forgiveness, for daily bread, for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. 
keep us from evil and temptation. Let us be a people who use this prayer as a model to pray. And God, I pray you would transform our hearts and lives. We said last week, God, that prayer most often changes us. So Lord, help us to be a praying church. Not a church who brags about how much we pray, but a, but a church who goes in secret. And prays to our Father who is in secret and is rewarded in secret. Help us to pray for one another. God, as we help us to get the time to get alone, to get by ourselves, and to sit down and to meditate and to pray. And help, God, would you bring other people to our minds who we need to pray for. Would you help us to pray for those people that we're harboring unforgiveness against? God, because we know that it is really hard to be mad at somebody you're praying for. And so, Father, for those in this room who who are struggling, letting go of that last little bit of unforgiveness. They've let go of 95% of it, but there's a little bit they just don't want to let go quite yet. Help us to pray for those people we're angry at, or hurt by, and to fully forgive them, to pay the debt. God, help us to be a praying people and transform us as we pray. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus because your debt has not been paid, but you stand condemned and guilty in your sin, and you owe the debt, and it's a debt you could never afford. If it's you this morning, come talk with me as we pray. I'm going to stand right up here. Let me show you how Jesus has already paid for it and will wipe your slate clean. You say, Brent, I'm not good enough. i got to clean up first. got to get my life right first. got to come to church a little bit more often. No, that's a lie. That's a temptation from hell that leads you away from the truth. Jesus is waiting with open arms to take you in right now. And he'll wipe the debt clean. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with, with a temptation, with a thing you're stuck in, I'd love to pray with you and hug your neck. If you're here this morning and, and you're struggling forgiving someone, I'd love to pray with you and give you the courage to forgive them all the way. Wherever you're at, wherever you need, stand there, pray, stand, sing, come, let me pray for you. Sometimes it's helpful to let someone else pray for you. Let me do that. Let me have the honor of doing that for you. God, give us the courage to respond as we need. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said, let's stand and sing together.